Lord, we are thankful that we have the great privilege of having an account like this to ponder, to consider, and to understand, Lord, that it's written for our benefit. It certainly was written for the benefit of those original readers, um, and yet at the same time, because of the, the preservation of your word and the, the inspiration of your word, now it is part of what has been breathed out to us. And so, Lord, you seek to do some things in your people today through this passage by your Holy Spirit. And I ask, Lord, that as your messenger, that I would simply be your mouthpiece, that what, uh, what I say would be a, a reflection of uh, your intent to us through this passage. And Lord, we ask for wisdom, for discernment, and for you to be glorified as you work your will in our hearts. In your precious name, amen. In my experience, as I have pastored through the years, there is a growing disdain for the subject of history. You may have noticed it also, um, especially if you are a little bit older like I am. Some want to ignore it as if it has no bearing on life now. In fact, there was a church that I was candidating at to become pastor, and after I had preached a sermon, there was a lady who came up to me, and she, was, uh, she said to me, I don't want to hear about a bunch of dead guys. I don't think those dead guys have any bearing on how we live today. I want to hear about people who are living now. So there's no understanding that you learn from history about how to live in the present. Others are repulsed by it because of things like slavery and wars and all the atrocities that history remembers. And of course, um, that is saying that um, you want to ignore the realities of the past rather than realize the impact of those realities and be a force of change and force of, of I might say, gospel difference in the world. Many have failed to learn from history as the, the famous statement that is repeated, and it's on the memorial at Dachau concentration camp. It's placed there so everyone who comes in can see. It says, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. That's a powerful statement. And it's a reminder that history teaches. And history is important for us to understand how we are to live then today and not to make the same mistakes. But even others are content to aggressively rewrite history, to simply serve their own ends. And we're finding that happening in our textbooks today. There's a turning over of history because of political agendas. Now, friends, true history respects the truth. It's going, to, it's going to approach a moment in history for what it actually is, good or bad. That's what history does. It remembers the accomplishments of men and women in history. It retells the stories in vivid detail. It reveals those who acted in such a way as to move history. And yet, the history books cannot contain all the heroic efforts of men and women throughout the world and throughout history. Because so many of them have 
unrecorded. And yet, history is important to us. Go into cities around the world, and you will typically find, especially if they've been places where there have been battles, you will find um, monuments and statues and artwork and museums and dates on calendars There are all ways that those particular societies want their people to remember. And all they do is to remind the people of the, the great battles, the great sacrifice, the great accomplishments, the great feats that took place to maintain that city for what it is today. Now, in our country... You don't typically see that on the West Coast. You see some remnants of that. If you ever go up on the other side of the the Golden Gate Bridge and you kind of circle around up and you go up and look at the bridge from the other side, the, 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 you know, across the way on the Marin side there, there are actually some old gunnery things. Actually cool, it's really cool if you haven't done that before, right? Um, You see that there, but they're not so much monuments. But you go to the East Coast, you're gonna see some of that. But then, if you go outside of our country, like into Europe, places like England or, or Russia or Ukraine where I've been or, um, or Italy uh, or even France, you will find that history there is a lot longer than American history. And there are statues and monuments all over the place because they want to remember. That's the point of those things. They want to remember what has taken place in the past. They want to remind the people that are living today about the importance of history. And friends, that is a a sense of what is happening in our text today. The the book of 1 and 2 Samuel is historical narrative. It's history that is on display for us. One of the things I love about the Bible is that it's raw. It gives you details that are shocking at times. It takes you into little vignettes where you're like, why in the world did that happen? It's honest. It's truthful. And yet here when we come to this particular text, what we have is, is a gallery of the faithful. David's mighty men. Men who did valiant things in battle to stand for the righteous and God-fearing king and to preserve his righteousness and this God-fearing kingdom where refreshment and where nourishment dawn on the people. Remember, like light and bringing life and warmth and blessing. It's a passage, friends, that seeks to honor the faithful service of loyal subjects to both king and kingdom. Honoring the faithful service of loyal subjects to both king and kingdom. And that's what we're going to see as we walk through this text. And just, just to help us out a little bit, the, the text can be broken down really into two sections. There's the, the first section, verses 8 through 12, which talks about the three. And then the rest, 13 through 39, it talks about the 30. And that's, that's the structure of David's mighty men. There were three guys who were like the, 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 the three mighty men, and then there was the 30. And even in that section of the 30, we're going to find some, some vignettes about what they did that was so admirable that they are re- remembered for their service to both king and kingdom. So let's begin by considering here, first of all, the victory 
that amazes us, the victory that amazes us, the three great victories, three men, Josheb, Bashabeth, Eleazar, and Shamar are known as the three. Those are probably some names you hadn't heard of before. Eleazar, possibly, but the others, not likely. Joshe, Bashabeth, was the leader of the three, but all three of them were known for their great victories and their victories in particular against insurmountable odds. Just look at, at his um, circumstance here. It tells us that he fought with a spear against 800 men, likely Philistines, at one time and defeated them all. That's incredible. And they say, oh, this is just this is folklore. This is just mythology. No, this is historical fact. David is recording what actually happened in one of those battles. Then there's Eleazar. And he literally stood out among the crowd of fellow men of Israel. As the Philistines were coming, they were defying the Philistines. The Philistines came, and all the men of Israel ran away, except for Eleazar. And we're told that he stood there, and he took on these Philistines, and he stood his ground, and he struck down the Philistines until his arm was weary. In particular, his hand clung to the sword. Now, I don't know all the science behind that, whether it was the blood congealing on his, his hand or somehow his, his hand, because of being in battle, got so numb he couldn't feel it anymore. I don't know the science behind that, but he stood his ground and he kept fighting and he kept fighting and he kept fighting. And then the shaman who defended a plot, a plot ground full of lentils. His fellow Israelite soldiers fled the field while the Philistines were coming in, raiding into the Israelite territory, but he wasn't going to let this field go. Now, we in the West um, don't really know what lentils are. I mean, that's not part of our typical diet. Some of us do. Um, but they really are from the region of India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Nepal, um, and they are a staple to the people. So they're like rice to the people there, although in those places they also have rice, okay? But they're like the staple food. And I grew up, um, because my, both my parents grew up in India, and so usually once a week we would have curry. And my mom would spend hours separating the little doll seeds, um, the, getting the bad ones out, or little lentil seeds, and she would make this stuff called doll that was like a side dish, kind of like a split pea kind of a thing. It was a side dish that you serve with with Indian curry. So I remember it, and I didn't like it at all. But it's a staple food. Now you say, well, what's the big deal? It's just, it's just lentils. I mean, it's like, it's like standing in a, in a wheat field and saying, well, all these Philistines, well, let's just give it over. No, no, no. That what's important about these is that they're staple food for the Israelites, and they belong to Israel. And so he was not willing to give it up. And he stood there, and he battled, and he battled, and he kept the Philistines from actually taking any of um, that property from them. So these victories are all amazing feats of strength and determination for king and kingdom. That's how we need to see them. 
This is not just them trying to bring glory to themselves. There's something deeper going on. There's something more important taking place. And the question here is, why did they take place? Was it simply the, the incredible strength and determination of these men? Was it that they just were supreme examples of human specimens, far superior than their enemies? Did they have greater weapons or superior military tactics that can be reproduced for, for further generations? And the answer, of course, is no. We find the answer to the source of their victories in the text, and it's mentioned twice. It says, the Lord brought about a great victory. The Lord worked a great victory. See, the reason for their strength the reason for their victory was not just their skill. God was using their skill. He was using their talents. But the reason they were able to accomplish such great feats of victory is because of the Lord who was working through them. That's what the text is driving home for us here. That is how David is remembering them. Yes, they were men who served king and kingdom, but it was the Lord who was behind them and working through them. And so, friends, as we consider how God has wired us, how he has strengthened us and the skills and the abilities and the talents that we have, we must recognize that the real strength is that God, working through his faithful servants, people like us who want to be used by him, but it's God working through us. It's not just us working in our own strength. He is the one that accomplishes things through his faithful services, servants. So we're not called to live our lives in our own strength, but in the strength that he provides. But it's amazing when you think and you consider these victories. Secondly, notice the loyalty that awes us, the loyalty that now awes us. And this is verses 13 through 17. The scene now shifts from the three, the three mighty men, to the, the 30 mighty men and their feats for their king and for the kingdom. Now, in this particular section, we're told about three of those 30, but they are unnamed. And I want you to notice their extravagant loyalty. Notice what it is that they do. And three of the 30 chief men went down and came about the harvest time to David in the cave at Agilom when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. So it was during that time when, when David was wandering in the wilderness, there was this stronghold, a hideout away from Saul, away from the band of Philistines that were also raiding and trying to find him. David was being pursued from different angles. And while he was in, the, in, in the, the stronghold and there was this garrison in Bethlehem, he's just hiding out and he's just thinking about his hometown of Bethlehem. And he's remembering this well. And he's remembering how sweet the water was from this well. And he's sitting, just probably talking with his men, reminiscing, just saying, oh man, it would be so good to have some of that cool, sweet water from that well that I used to drink from when I was a little kid. You guys know what I'm talking about. If you've ever left the country and you've been gone for a little bit, you understand some things that you miss. 
I mean, some things that come to mind. When I talk to people who have left the country, when I've gone like on mission trips with people and they get off the plane in San Francisco, one of the first places they want to go to is In-N-Out. <laughs> Isn't that weird? It's a California thing, right? In-N-Out. I want a burger. I want a good, you know, all-around American burger. Give me an In-N-Out. Or um, they're like, man, give me some peanut butter. You have to understand, peanut butter is a very American phenomenon. I remember growing up in England, and I, I remember walking into an American home, because uh, there were not too many of them, and you can smell the peanut butter. It's just, it's just part, of, it's part of our American culture. Um, you know, you have, your, um, you have your other scents, potpourri scents, and then you have the peanut butter that kind of overtakes all that, right? But then, of course, one of the things you long for when you come back here is, oh, how wonderful drip coffee is. You go outside of America, apart from Canada, um, and, you know, you have coffee, but it's not drip coffee. It's all like espresso. It's all the real heavy, strong stuff, which is not bad. It's a good substitute, but it's not the same thing. It's just having a pot of coffee that you can just kind of pour and, and jug down. Now, again, these are things you long for. Now, I'm thinking of it differently, now that I've I'm here in the States. I've been here a long time since I've been 16, but there are things that as I reflect over my childhood growing up in particular in England that every once in a while I'm pining away for. I'm, I'm, I'm tasting as I remember some things. These are some candies called Maltesers. Oh, they're good. Now here, they're kind of like Whoppers, but I tried a Whopper. It's just not the same. Maltesers are far, but chocolate, honeycomb, oh, it's good. Then another one, wine gums. Now, don't, it's not because you get drunk off of them, okay? It's candy, and they're, they're just like flavored candy, and they're just, oh, it's just, just great. And another thing, and this is, you either love this or you don't, you don't love it, but um, another thing is, is, is Marmite. Now, oh, see, I've got a fellow Marmite lover. You either love it or you hate it. Now, see, I love Marmite. Marmite is a yeast extract. It really sounds appealing, doesn't it, right? We used to use it for initiation in our society when I was in college, you know. So you either love it or you hate it, but um, um, I, I, I enjoy that. And you, you jug Marmite on toast with lots of butter and a good cup of tea. Um, there are some things that are close to heaven. That is one of them. <laughs> I see you, you haven't experienced some things in life. Now, I'm just bringing this up to give you a sense of this thing that's like, oh, if, if only, you know, so it would be like me and Chris saying, hey. Wouldn't it be great if we could have some Marmite? Oh, man, that would be good. We ought to do that sometime, friend, okay? We ought to do that. Um, that's what David's doing here. Man, it would be great just to have some water from that particular well. And, and, and David is not telling anyone to go do anything. But back to the story now with this taste of Marmite in my mouth. Um, three of David's 30 who are left unnamed it seems, conspire together and come up with a plan. They're going to get into Bethlehem, they're going to get some water, and they're going to bring it back, and they're going to give it to David. And, and, and the whole desire really is to bring joy to their king. But what's interesting about this plan is they are not going to go in the stealth of night. How do they go? Well, they go straight into the camp. And notice what the text says. It says, they broke through the camp of the Philistines. In other words, they went hacking away into the camp just to get some water and then bring it back to David. 
Friends, this was a bold strategy. I mean, you can imagine them sitting talking. How are we going to do this? Can we go at night? No, that's too easy. How are we going to? Let's go in the middle of the day when all the army is there, and we'll just fight through them, and we'll get the water, and we'll bring it back to David. I like that plan. That's what's going on here, friend. It's a bold move. And they come, and they give this water to David. It's an act of loyalty. It's an act of love. It's a demonstration of, of their heart toward their king. It's the kind of loyalty that is worthy of remembrance. And it's the kind of love that endures hardship for the sake of the king and, and his desires. Any ruler would love to have these guys serving under him. Now, I don't want to read too much into the text, and I really don't want to argue too much from silence, but in a passage where 37 men are being honored, it is unusual that these three mighty men of the 30 are not named. I mean, could it be that, that, that their, their names are not really important? Could it be that their, their motivation was so much more than to be personally recognized and rewarded for what they were doing, or simply, maybe what they were simply doing was trying to bring joy to their king? Or, or could it simply be that three men who love their king and are loyal to him choose to do whatever it takes to please him? Now, it's worth asking the question, why is it that we do what we do for the Lord, and I put that in parentheses. Do we do that because we want to draw attention to ourselves? Or do we do that boldly, simply out of love and loyalty for the king that we serve and for the kingdom that we are seeking to move forward? If you remember, if you caught as J.D. prayed today for the offering, we say this a lot, use this for the furtherance of your what? Kingdom. And God, he furthers his kingdom through his servants. So is your motivation to draw attention to yourself and to say, ah, oh, that was Rod who did that, or is it simply I'm going to do it and I'm going to kind of step back in the shadows and enjoy the fact that he's pleased or that he's finding joy in it? Their actions were audacious, but David's response seems even more atrocious at first. We have extravagant loyalty, but now we have extravagant honor. At first glance, it seems that David doesn't appreciate their actions and the attitude behind their actions. It seems that David is wasting this demonstration of loyalty as he pours out the water on the ground. I mean, you can imagine if this was, you know, just a, in kind of a context where someone's writing a book and, and these guys go in and they're hacking away and they finally get the water and they get back to their king and they give him the water and he's like, and he just pours it out. Well, what did I do all that for? Why did I sacrifice my life and put my life on the line and go and hurt all these people simply to get water for you to pour it on the ground? What a waste. But that's not what's going on here. David is not communicating to them that this was a waste. In fact, what David does here 
is he honors their loyalty. Because we're told here that David pours out the water, and there's three words that help us understand what's going on, to the Lord. Their demonstration of loyalty and love toward David results in David's honoring of them and his worship of God. He is pouring out their sacrifice to God. He is saying, listen, I cannot drink this because of the sacrifice of blood on your part that this represents. David's actions actually were such that he could not have honored them more. So they're not upset. Their loyalty results in David's worship. (laughs) Is that not the goal of our service to one another and to the Lord Jesus Christ? It just reminds me also of that that passage in the New Testament. Jesus is in a home and, and Mary comes and she anoints the feet of Jesus with expensive ointment breaking the alabaster jar and pouring all of the ointment on his body. And the disciples, and in particular Judas, they get upset. And they say, what a waste! All this money could have been used to what? Feed the poor. That's always used, right? Feed the poor. It's the same thing as kind of like modern-day TV commercials, right? Oh, you know, let's show a picture of these children in all their poverty and suffering. It's a waste over here. No. Jesus says, oh, no, no, no. She is just preparing me for what is yet to come. This extravagant act was a preparation for Jesus' being poured out on the cross as a sacrifice for us. It's a wonderful picture. And friends, it it should awe you. (laughs) These guys did what they did. Notice also the reputation that inspires us. We've seen great victories of the three and the extravagant loyalty of the unnamed three. Now the writer of Samuel is drawing our attention to two mighty men whose reputation or renown would inspire future generations. Notice, first of all, the renown, and in particular, the consistency of Abishai. Here we have Abishai. Now, he was the chief of the 30, we're told, and his reputation come from his skills with a spear. We're told he wielded his spear against 300 men and killed them and won a name beside the three. Now, this doesn't appear to be a victory on one occasion like we saw earlier. Instead, it appears that Abishai and his renown came from the the habitual, the consistency of his skill in battle over the long haul. I mean, this is 300's a considerable body count, okay? He was skillful. He was a a mighty warrior in battle. But so his his renown is is not greater than any others, uh, and another person's isn't greater than his. It's simply that his was different. It was consistent. It was lethal. It was dependable. And yet, as we've read in the story, Abishai would eventually die at the hand of David's son. And then we have not just the consistency of Abishai, we also have the intensity 
of Benaiah. Now, this guy is pretty incredible when you think about it. We're told he was a valiant man. He was a doer of great deeds. That doesn't mean he went around doing good. All right? The, the great deeds now are, are put on display for us. At least three of them are put on display for us. Great deeds in battle is the idea. First of all, he struck down two aerials of Moab. Now, honestly, the commentators are divided as to exactly what these aerials of Moab are, but the word aerial in Hebrew means lion, so it's very likely that the aerials of Moab were like Moab's mighty men. And many times, there were those who would come into battle with, with like, you know, these, these heads of lions on, on them, and they would go into battle kind of in that sense. And so it's very likely that, that he, is, he is the one who, who killed off these, these, these aerials in particular of Moab, who seemed to appear like these lions. Secondly, he struck down an actual lion in a pit on a snowy day. All right, and so the, these, these, three, these descriptions of the account all add to the intensity and the uniqueness of the challenge before him. Just let me walk you through it, right? He defeated a lion. Let that one settle in. Now, I know you've, you've read about Samson before, right? But right, he, anyone here defeated a lion recently? No. All right? And to add to the story, he defeated a lion on a snowy day. What does that tell you? Well, it was cold and probably slippery, right? I mean, so the uniqueness of the kind of, of battle that was taking place there against the lion was pretty interesting here. But not only that, he defeated a lion on a snowy day in a pit. <laughs> I'm not told what kind of a pit. But the, you see, the intensity of what's going on here is like, wow, this guy is tough. And then finally, there's this another story of his great deeds where he encounters this handsome Egyptian. Now, the writer didn't have to say handsome Egyptian. He could just say Egyptian. Why he says handsome Egyptian, I'm not sure. Maybe he was like the, the Christian Ronaldo of of warriors in the Egypt world. I don't know. I mean, he thought a lot about himself. He thought he was tough. He thought he was God's greatest gift, so to speak. There might be some of that going on. But notice what happens. He goes to meet this Egyptian with simply a staff in his hand. And the Egyptian has a spear. And so Benaiah is able to snatch the spear out of his hand and kill him with the Egyptian spear. That's not a small thing, friends. That's pretty gifted when it comes to being a mighty warrior. But there's just, this guy's intense. He is a guy you want to have by your side. If wild beasts come, Beniah. If a handsome Egyptian comes by, Beniah. If these aerials, I don't know if that's a Disney motif there, come, all right, go get them. I don't know. But you, you want, these are guys you want by your side, and that's why they were David's mighty men. Now, this is what, this is what these two guys did. But I want you now to, to notice, that was their renown, but notice now their reward. And this is something unique to these two, is that we're told a little bit about how they are rewarded. They are given, each of them are given responsibility based on their acts for their king and for the kingdom. Abishai was chosen by David to be the chief of the 30, their commander, and Beniab was chosen 
by David to be the leader over his bodyguard. Right? To whom much is given, much will be required. But when you, when you give and you're faithful with what has been given, what does God do? He gives you more. He gives you greater responsibility. And so there is a sense of reward for being faithful. Now, I realize in Christian culture, the Christian culture has gone back and forth on this subject of, of reward, and we need to think through that. But first of all, let's just remind ourselves of the pattern that we've seen as we've walked through this text so far. First of all, God gives strength to his loyal subjects. And he gives strength to his loyal subjects to serve the king and to protect the kingdom. And it's helpful for us to might, I want to say, to kind of push back and ask ourselves, well, what does that mean for us? You see, as, as God's children, one of the things that we need to rest in is the fact that it is Christ who is in us that is the hope of glory. It is God who is at work in us, Paul says in Philippians, who works in us and through us. Listen to verse 12 and 13 of Philippians 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is my, in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That, that salvation, it means their, their pursuit of Christ-likeness. They're already saved, but now they're working on being more like Christ. And then he says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So it's God who's working in us. It's God who's working through us to accomplish his will. That's the first thing. Secondly, God's people seek to serve their king with a love and a loyalty that is extravagant and awe-inspiring. And then the third thing we've learned so far is that God encourages us on a human level when we demonstrate our faithfulness to him by giving us greater and growing responsibilities. So again, this concept of reward is not anti-God or anti-church, but these rewards must be Christ-centered. And let me just say it this way. Certainly the scriptures stress that while salvation is a gift of God, believers will be rewarded according to their deeds. There's a reward connected to how you live for his glory. We see that in the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5 verse 12, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the end of the Beatitudes. And just let me just kind of just throw out again just some different ways rewards connect with us that relate to our relationship with God. Persecution, there is a reward for persecution. We saw that in just as I read there, Matthew 5, 12. But there's also in Matthew 6, verses 4, 6, and 18, a reward for true but hidden piety. In other words, the passage talks about giving and praying and fasting, and to do that in secret, in private, not before men, but simply before God. And so in verse 4 it says, so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will what? Reward you. And we're talking about prayer. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will what? Reward you. 
Again, fasting, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in, in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So again, there's this idea of reward for this true but hidden piety. Also, there's a reward for those who exercise hospitality for God's servants. Matthew chapter 10, 41 and 42. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So there's this, there is a connection here between faithful service and reward. Luke 6, 35. We're told here, love your enemies, do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. Again, your relationship with those who are your enemies even, how you respond to them, how you interact with them, results then in a reward when it's done for Christ. And then one that's uniquely for me would be if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward, and that's talking about the preaching of the gospel. So friends, there are rewards that are in Scripture, and there's rewards for being faithful with what God has given you. And that certainly should inspire us. Fourth, notice the legacy that encourages us. I want to thank Debbie for doing such a great job of reminding us of all of these names. We have a long list of names here. And to us, most of them are just obscure names on a page. For most of them, we have no record of their achievement at all. But they were all part of a team, all part of David's mighty men, the 30. Just, just kind of glance over them again. Asahel, Elhanan, Shammah, Herod, Alika, Helaz, Ira, Abiezer, Abunai, Zalman, Marai, Haleb, Ittai, Banai, Hidal, Albiolban. I'll just stop there. Have you guys ever been to the Vietnam Wall before? Been to Washington and gone to the Vietnam Wall? And I've been to situations like that. Sometimes they've, they've had it. It's been a mobile wall. It's gone. And one of the things that I, I remember doing, I have, a, I have um, uh, an uncle um, who died in Vietnam on my wife's side, and uh, we always, we, when we've gone, we've looked for his name and stuff. But when I go to a place like that, I, I like to run my hand over the names. I know nothing about them. And I pause and I just stop and I look at a name, and, I, and I'm just reminded that that was someone's son. And that, that individual actually may have been married, I don't know. But there are some people that loved him there's some people that nurtured him. He was a part of a family. He was a part of a community. This one name, and then I, I rub my hands a little bit further, and I see another name, and I'm just reminded that this person wasn't just a, a name kind of carved into some marble stone. This is a real person, but this is a memorial to remember their life of sacrifice and, and what they have done for our country and ultimately for me. And I'm reminded that those names are not there by accident. And friends, there's, there's no name listed here 
that is listed here by accident. But one of the things is, there's actually three things I think that are worthy of us noticing about this list. First of all, notice the diversity of this list. Um, you can read it for yourself, but some of the men came from different parts of the land in Israel. You'd have to notice where all these different villages are and where all these different places are located. But they're located from all over. And you go down one of those lists at the Vietnam Wall, and, and these names are from people all over the country, from all different places. Not only that, um, some of these men were foreigners. There's a, a, a Machahite in verse 34. There's an Ammonite. Remember the Ammonite people? I mean, David fought against them. There's Uriah the Hittite. These are foreigners who came and joined Israel, worshipped Israel's God, and these men ended up being mighty men fighting with and for the king of Israel. There's diversity. All of these men loyal to David and his God and to his kingdom. Secondly, there's unity. There's unity. These were David's mighty men. There was the three, there was the 30, and in every sense they were united together for the purpose of serving their king and for the purpose of furthering and protecting the kingdom. But there was also continuity because I think it's interesting. When you go to the beginning of that list, do you notice what it says? It says, Asahel, the brother of Joab, was one of the 30. And you go down to the bottom, Uriah the Hittite, 37 in all. So like, all right, so how many were there? All right, so this is a record over time of the guys who served as part of the 30. And so there was a continuity to this 30. When some died, others were taken and brought in. So this, this whole idea of the 30 was more of a title than a tight name. But it seems like they kept this 30. So if someone dies in battle, they bring someone else in now to replace that person to kind of continue that 30. That's the idea. But friends, this is, this is all very, very much like God's church, isn't it? Diverse, united, some come, some go. God brings people home. He brings new people in. But most of the church, most people are relatively unknown. Most people are somewhat unnamed. They're run-of-the-mill people. Most of the people in God's church throughout history are people like you and me that, you know, in 70 years, people will not remember. There's nothing hugely significant about us, and that's okay. It really is okay. I think that's what this text is reminding us of, is that simply being a part of the, the body of Christ is significant in and of itself. There will always be some that will have some lasting historical name. I heard this a few years ago about uh, Dr. Albert Moeller. I don't know if you know who Albert Moeller is. He's the president of Southern Seminary, um, a, a well-known speaker, speaks at a number of different conferences, and he was attending the Shepherds Conference, which is held at John MacArthur's church down in L.A., which is a pretty big gathering, maybe about 4,000 or so at that time, and a few years ago, he was, he was one of the keynote speakers, and part of his, his mode of operation at a conference like that is he will, he will arrive early when the guys are coming, 
and he wants to greet people as they come. He just wants to kind of be around pastors and interact with pastors because he, he doesn't think of himself in, in kind of a, a high and mighty way. And so he's out there, and, and, and he, he sees the places, lots of pastors are walking around, but he sees these guys, and it's, it's clear that this is the first time they've ever been there. They're all giddy and taking it all in and looking at it and stuff like that. And then they, they look at him, and they're like, oh, can we get a picture? And so he's like, he says, straightens his tie up and fixes his jacket and makes sure there's nothing on his face. And he's like, yeah, sure, I, we can get a picture. And so they hand him the camera, and they said, make sure you get the logo behind us, Okay. <laughs> They had no idea who he was. And he said that was so refreshing for him. He's a keynote speaker, and they had no clue who he was. And friends, there's a sense in which that, that's a rightful place for us. Our glory should not be among men. Our, our, our glory should be before our Father, before the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are other lists in Scripture, right? There's the hall of faith we have in Hebrews 11, a beautiful array of historical people through the age of, the, of, 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 of God's kingdom who exercise great faith. It's a great section of Scripture. There's another list, though. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life. And it's a list where all those who are true believers are recorded. And the question is, will you be found in the Lamb's Book of Life? Just be found. doesn't say be in the top three. Just be found in the Lamb's book of life. That's where we want to be. Now, friends, sadly, at the end here, there's a warning. There's a warning that shakes us. And, and um, sorry, it's continuity. There's this warning that shakes us. And this warning that shakes us basically is because in this list are two men that David harmed greatly. One by the name of Uriah whom he murdered, and another one by the name of Eliam, who was the father of Bathsheba. Both of them were part of David's mighty men. And it just, it just reminds you of the, the, the horrible reality that your sin can even affect those who are loyal to you and willing to give their lives up for you. So there's a warning here, and it should shake us that, that it's not surprising that even in the context of church, those who you pour yourself into can turn around and bite you, or you could even bite them. Thankfully, there is restoration, uh, not, for, not for Uriah because he died, but it's a warning for us. The other thing is there's the absence of Joab. If you know the story, Joab was one of the key commanders of David. But later in his command, Joab starts to say, you know, I, I think you need to do it this way. And he and David bucked heads. And there was so much tension between Joab and David, you have to wonder whether he is left off this list because of the way that he behaved with David. In fact, in 2 Kings 2, the actual last words of David that we have recorded in the Bible it says this, beginning at verse 5, Moreover, he's speaking to Solomon, his son. Moreover, you also know what Joab, the son of Zariah, did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for the blood that he had been shed in war and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals of his, on his feet. 
Act therefore according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. That was not a kind word from David. Now the point here is that even in this list, we see that the frailty of man, the sinfulness of man, even among mighty men. It's just, it's just a reminder, friends, that the body of Christ, we need to work hard at maintaining peace among the brethren, at exercising um, forgiveness and, and pursuing restoration if there are things that are going on within the body of Christ that, where, where feelings have been hurt or there have been sins against one another. Those things are restored. We need to work together as a team, and that's one of the things that I think challenges us. Now, as we bring this to a close, I want us to consider here um, what it would be like for mighty men or mighty women, or I'll call them spiritual heroes, to be in existence today. Because I think as we prayed this morning that this passage wasn't just kind of for them then, it is also for us now, and there are some things we've already looked at that kind of push, push back or push into our lives right now, but I do think that we can, we can all consider what it means to be a mighty man, what it means to be a, a mighty woman, or someone who will be included in that list, someone who's faithful in, in serving the king and his kingdom. Now, in David's day, Israel was constantly at war, and so it appears that one of the measurements was body count. And that kind of gave you recognition. But that doesn't, that doesn't work for us today, okay? I'm just telling you, that's not how we're going to do things, okay? Um, but there, there is another way that we, in the New Testament, in the, in the church, now recognize this battle that's taking place. Because the, the, the Word of God tells us that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. So there's this, there is this spiritual warfare that is going on. And so, what are some marks of mighty men or mighty women of God today? Or what are some, what are some spiritual heroes look like? And I've come up with eight. It's not an exhaustive list, but I tried to pull from the example that we've had here. And I want you to just be pondering this because this is all about us. These are things that we can and, and should be doing as we seek to, to live our lives for his glory and for the furtherance of his kingdom. Number one, um, they are disciplined. Heroes are disciplined. Just think about David's mighty men. They practice, I'm sure, with the spear, with the sword. They practice their moves. They, they were disciplined people. And the tools that God has given us are things like prayer, Bible study and intake. Um, it could be fasting. It could be simply um, uh, recognizing the theology of the gospel that you are in Christ. Discipline means that I'm working hard with the things that God has given me to be skillful. They were disciplined. And that also means practiced. And it also means that they're aware of the ways in which the enemy attacks. So they're disciplined. Secondly, they're tough. They emerge in times of crisis. Because of their discipline, because of their prayer life, because of their time in the Word of God, because they are gathering together with the saints and, and a part of the body of Christ, when difficult times come, what happens? They are able to respond in a Christ-like way in times of crisis. 
and they're able to stand their ground. And they're tough when the odds are against them. They're tough when other people are fearful or failing. Third, they're sacrificial. They're willing to die, if need be, for their king. God calls some people to serve in very unique ways. Sometimes that means putting your life on the line. Sometimes that means supporting those who are putting their life on the line. There are some missionaries around the world who are in very, very difficult places. Now, we, we want to honor them. We want to recognize the gift that God has given them to serve in those capacities. And, and you know, there, there are places that are far less comfortable than we have it today in our context. And their lives might be in more jeopardy than ours would be. They're all part of the team. But we also, at the same way, should be willing to be sacrificial. Willing to die? Willing to give up some things that may be part of our comforts? Number four, they are responsible. They take their duties and responsibilities before God seriously. So living life is, is not for selfish gain, but for the glory of God. But when you live your life for the glory of God, God promises he'll take care of your needs, right? Serving Christ and his body is a high priority to them. They recognize that because they are God's children, because now they've been gifted in the body of Christ, that they are to exercise their gifts for the body of Christ. That's a responsibility that they have, and they recognize it as so. And just like David's mighty men, they were responsible with the tasks and the, and, and, and the opportunities that they were given. Number five, heroes today are extravagant. They go above and beyond the call of duty, out of faith, out of loyalty, and out of love. Probably, if you have been the recipient of someone's kindness because you're going through a difficult time, maybe it's a, a financial burden, and they, they slip you some money or put something in an envelope or it comes in the mail, behind that is someone likely who has a gift of giving but also is willing to be extravagant and say, God, I'm doing this not because I can afford to. I'm doing this because I love you, and I want to serve you. And so I'm willing to, I'm willing to do this. You, and you receive it, and you're like, how in the world could these people afford to do this? It's extravagant. But it's God-centered extravagance. It's a reflection of their love for God and their loyalty to him. That brings us then to number six. They are loyal, no matter what. They anchored to the king who was anchored to them. That's a loyalty. Are you a follower of Christ? It's easy to say that today. In a different context, someone might ask you the same question. Are you a follower of Christ? Well, I, uh, oh, look, a plane. You know, I mean, you, you want to you divert things because you're fearful of how they might respond. You're unsure, but Friends, as Christians, we are loyal. We, we, we are Christians. 
That's the whole point. We are followers of Christ. And we should be known as that and seen as that, not because we're quirky, not because we're weird in, in you know, kind of a spooky way, but simply because we are living our lives by what God has breathed out freely, joyfully, and trusting that God is going to work through all that to bring about his purposes. Number seven, they're humble. They're not looking for self-glory, not looking to have their name put on a plaque anywhere. But they're looking to honor their king. They're looking to bring glory to him. See, God, God calls us to that. And finally, they are examples. They are examples for others to follow, others to emulate. Why would there be someone waiting in the wings, so to speak, if there is a mighty man who dies in battle? Because there's someone there who's been preparing to be one of those mighty men. And the point here is that, that we have the privilege and opportunity of being examples to those who are coming up, who are younger in the faith, to say, this is what it looks like. This is how you serve the king. This is how you further the kingdom. This is how you live for Christ. David had his mighty men. Jesus has his children. So there's a sense in which we are all followers of the king with the, the gifts and the tools to serve him as he has called us to do so and to do that for his glory in these ways. May we be a church that takes that to heart. May you be a person who takes this to heart. And may we be strengthened because of that. Lord, help us today. You are a great God and Savior. We are in awe of these men who fought alongside David so faithfully. And yet, Lord, at first it seems daunting that we could never rise to the level of being like them. But, Lord, you're not asking us to rise up and be seen. You're asking us, Lord, to take the nuggets from these examples and to consider our walk with you that we would be like them and that we are living our lives for your glory in these ways. That we are disciplined. That we're the kind of people that, that can face tough times and trust you through them. That we're the kind of people who are sacrificial or responsible with what you've given us. And we're not so caught up with this world, that we're, we're tight with what we have. We can be extravagant, even a, a, above and beyond what people might think that we'll be loyal and humble, and as a result, leading others to do the same thing as they're growing in their walk with you. Lord, make us a church that, that is like these mighty men, that we would have mighty men and women serving you, honoring you, loving you, glorifying you, desiring to give you all the praise because you are our great God and Savior. We ask this now in your name.